Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 25. I'm Jessica Yaquinto, and I'll be your host today. And today we are talking about technology. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge the Pueblo peoples on whose ancestral lands I'm recording today, as well as the Nooch or Ute peoples on whose treaty lands I'm recording today, as well as the fact that this area is also part of the Dineta. So we have a panel today, and we're going to have everyone introduce themselves. So let's start with you, Aaron. My name's uh, Aaron Brin. I teach at Salish Kootenai College in our Tribal Historic Preservation Bachelor's Program. And yeah, happy to be here. Hi, my name is Emily Van Alst. I am a second year PhD student at Indiana University. I'm Siasapa Lakota. And my research focuses on how uh, Indigenous women in pre-contact society created and interacted with rock art. And Brees? Good morning. Uh, my name is Brees Edwards. I'm the manager for the Historic Preservation Office of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde here in Oregon. And unfortunately, Desiree Martinez and Lyle Belenqua couldn't join us today because of technology issues, of course. So that will be our panel today. And we are, why don't we just hit the ground running and just talk briefly about an overview of, of what you've seen as far as how have you seen technology be beneficial or detrimental to tribes, to your work, to historic preservation. Uh, let's start with Aaron real quick. Well, I mean, for what we do here uh, in our program, and then of course the archaeology that I've done working with my own people, the crows, and we use it a lot for like site recreation mainly non-invasive forms of archaeology to uh, GPR, LIDAR, things like that. And of course, like the total stations. And, and um, but what I've really found personally to be of greatest interest to me and, and not only to me, but to, to like the elders I work with in the community, communities that I work with is bringing the site to them, but also kind of a, what we're calling like a video form, a video site form. The video site form are um, these short documentaries that we're making. Uh, I, I know it's not like a GPR type thing, but um, it's definitely a form of technology that's becoming very, very useful for us in, in preservation work, you know, in heritage preservation. And, it, and obviously that affects archaeology and the discipline we do. And, and in Indian country, that seems to be, man, the perpetuation of culture is like, first and foremost for a lot of us, you know, and, and so these videos seem to be a big hit and going over really well. So, yeah. And how do you, how do you share those? Just curious. Well, it's still, it's kind of a work in progress, right? So we're still trying to figure out a way to make this the norm. See, we're doing this just kind of as a side note to site forms to all the GIS stuff. And then, but it's not, 
readily accepted yet by the resource managers on an official capacity, but it helps, it seems to help make decisions on mitigation and, and different things like that. So we're trying to work with with at least the local resource managers on making this not only the norm, but required. Like this should be a, a, a major part and it seems to be useful in, in consultation, um, which of course helps mitigation and and then uh, just understanding of site and culture and preservation and perpetuation. So, mm-hmm. so we're still working on it, but it's we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, that sounds super interesting. We should, yeah, we should come back to that when we talk more about dissemination and things like that. I really like that idea. So, um, Emily, let's move on to you. So uh, the field school site, I was a co-director for and a uh, co-TA, so teaching assistant for last year. Um, We did a lot of photogrammetry. Um, So basically doing a lot of photographs of a site and then kind of recreating that site um, in a sort of virtual world. Uh, And so we did this. We were photographing stone circles, um, drive lines, and uh, rock art. And so I think that's a really uh, great way to be sort of non-invasive, but also still sort of preserve the culture, like Aaron was saying, Um, especially when it comes to rock art, because there's such preservation issues, uh, especially out West, where there's a lot of vandalism um, and graffiti that occurs at rock art sites. So I've seen that be really helpful. And I think there's this idea sometimes that digging can be detrimental Um, But I've seen digging also be really helpful with involving community members. Um, The field school I worked at in uh, Japan um, included indigenous uh, community members from the Ainu community to come and dig uh, with the field school, which was really awesome. And so I think digging can be helpful if that's what a community um, would like in an archaeological context. But that's sort of what I've seen on the ground. I've also, when you sent out these questions, I was thinking about um, a sort of invasive slash non-invasive technology is social media um, and how that intersects with archaeology. And so like, what do we post for photos? What do we not post? Do we include like geotagging, not including geotagging if we want to preserve a site and we don't want the public to be, um, to know about that area and we don't want looting, obviously. So Sometimes I think it's important to teach our students sort of proactive things when it comes to um, preserving sites. And, and so I sort of see social media as something that could be helpful when disseminating knowledge. And we can come back to that later. Um, but mm-hmm. it can also be harmful. So I think there's, a, there's an important balance to try to find when it comes to social media and archaeology. Right. Like you wouldn't necessarily want to put on... Aaron's, you know, video site forms online. Right. <laughs> I mean, maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know. <laughs> Questions like that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So, Brees, do you want to give us our, your brief overview of technology in the tribe? And before Brees jumps in, I do want to mention too that I specifically asked them, the the panel today, that we were going to stay away from mapping and GIS. And I mean, obviously, like, it, I'm sure it'll come up, but we are looking at doing a separate panel later on mapping because there's just so much to talk about there. So if if that's what you're expecting, wait, and, and we'll hopefully get that to you sometime in the not-too-distant future. 
So, Brees. Yeah. So, we've looked at uh, the way we use technology in our office is in a couple of ways. Uh, we, but they boil down to ways of connecting people. So, we've done some apps uh, that try to connect younger and elder, where you know younger are really engaged with phone apps, but and elders with knowledge and practice and trying to bring them together as a way of engaging and working together. Um, and that's worked really well. And we've also um, been looking at things like story maps. And we're not talking about maps, but um, as a way of talking about how do we bring back stories on, on a landscape scale where not everybody's going to be able to get everywhere. Uh, so that's worked really well. And behind everything that we do uh, out of our office, we're always trying to make sure that we've got people in place and practice uh, all present in whatever uh, technology that we're going with. So that may be how we handle archiving technology or how we share that information out, uh, making sure that we've got those three P's all together. So now that the three of you have gotten a little bit of a chance to to give some examples from your specific work from here, I'm just going to ask questions and whoever wants to jump in, you know, we don't have to do the order thing um, now that everyone's gotten to like introduce some of their experiences with technology. So let's move to some of what Emily just mentioned. What what are the detrimental sides that the three of you have seen to technology? Uh, this is going to sound rather, uh, I don't know. I don't want to sound mean, but I notice sometimes technology can, it kind of, it seems like it could create a laziness sometimes out of people in actual, when it comes to field work, because uh, it, it almost seems like we want to rely mainly on the technology as opposed to, relying on understanding uh, i get i don't know like on a deeper level i don't want to sound cheesy but um, <laughs> you know what i mean i've j- i've personally have seen um field notes get worse even the application of oral history to a landscape or to a site get a, a little more relaxed because you can bump things up with technology you can make better maps you can use d stretch you can use all this stuff that kind of enhances things a little bit better. And at the end of the day, though, I mean, that collection of in, in, within your field notes and the understanding of the site just by sitting there and absorbing it and, and taking detailed notes seems to be decaying a little bit, at least in, in my experience. So you said detrimental, right? Yeah, detrimental. Oh. You're good. <laughs> yeah. <That's> perfect. <laughs> yeah, we've seen that. We review a lot of permits and everything here. And we're constantly trying to remind people, stop relying on pretty maps to try and tell me that you understand. <laughs> you know, one of the things that we've seen is that technology makes it a lot easier for people to damage sites. You know, you know sharing site location information now. We are really trying to be vigilant and work with the state for making sure that that information is secure um, and, you know, came across a 
county website that had um, a, an entire layer of archaeological sites that was publicly available and trying to <laughs> go, whoa, <laughs> maybe this is a bad idea. And in uh, the state of Oregon, there there's state ordinance that actually says that it's illegal to have that information out. So we were able to get that taken down. But it really highlighted where good intentions made it really easily switched over to be utilized for bad bad purposes. Yeah, I think that happens a lot at field school. Students have the tendency to always have their phone on them. Um, even if you're surveying or, you know, excavating for the day, students will always have their phone. And I know that they want to share photos with their family members back home if they're far away from home and those sorts of things. But it gets to a point, it's like, what should they be photographing for the sort of research aspect of field school? And then what do they ha- they're photographing for their own like personal use? Um, and what is allowed and what isn't allowed. And I know that I had a friend who just did a bioarchaeology field school for a month in the Midwest. And she said people were taking um, photographs of, of ancestors. And she was, she went over and was like, what are you doing? You know, you can't be doing this. And they were like, well, I'm not going to post it anywhere. So it's fine. So I think sometimes, even if the social media aspect can be removed from a situation, People are still taking photographs for not the research purpose, but for something else, which can be really tricky. Have you guys ever noticed that, I mean, a lot, it seems like a lot of, I don't know, archaeology sites, places like that will put a skeleton, even if it's not really necessary, (laughs) as the picture on on an article. Just, it seems like almost because they're like hoping it's going to get more readers. Has anyone else noticed this? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that seems... It's to the point where people are defining archaeology as like what forensics and physical anthropologists do, you know. And, right. and, and I mean, this goes back to like the ARC 101 class where if if you say you're an archaeologist, they, they ask you if you find bones and they're usually referring to human bones or dinosaur bones, obviously. But <laughs> um, I get asked all the time if I find human remains and, and I'm like, I don't want to find human remains. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I just don't want to deal with that. But yeah, you're right. I, I do notice that there seems to be this like push to always have that, like, um, the, the skull or like the, the femur kind of as the central theme of the, the deal. So. Yeah. And even some organizations that I, I would think would know better. So if you're listening, we're watching you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm watching them and I'm yeah. I'm being nice on your podcast today, but <laughs> I usually name drop people and <laughs> I'm not afraid to do that, but I'll be nice. <laughs> Even going into like classrooms and anthropology departments, there will always just like be like human remains out. And I'm like, we do more than that in anthropology. Like why does that, why do they have to be displayed all the time? You know what I mean? So it's just everywhere. It's constant. (laughs) Well, especially, especially working in Indian country, like, of course there's, there's a lot of individual tribal like uh, taboos and, and, and protocols in relation to human remains. But, but also I, I find it very flawed within the discipline of anthropology that the average BA student can understands human remains and and 
They can distinguish between jaw bones and femurs and tibias, but they can't tell me what a cultural landscape is. Mm-hmm. And they're expected to work within the field that is in, in a field that affects Indian country. They're working in the West or the, or the Midwest or First Nations in Canada. They're working within where they're going to work with tribal people on tribal resources, but they don't understand the basic concepts that tribal people work within. So yeah. I find that to be a major flaw. And so that even goes back to try to bring it back to technology. That goes back to how we're going to use technology in the field is in relation to the people you're working with, the communities you're working with, the type of archaeology you're working with, and even the geogra- geography of, of the site or, the, or however you're going about it. You know, you're, The technology you're choosing to use is dependent solely on that. At least that's how I feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we're getting up already to our first break time. So before we go, though, I I do want to build off of what you were just saying. And one specific question I have that I'd love for us to get to when we get back from this break is the question of confidentiality. So adapting your work to the tribe's needs in terms of confidentiality. So, for example, there's a program called... Uh, Mukutu. It's spelled M-U-K-U-R-T-U, um, but it looks like off their website it's it's Mukutu, and they basically have a platform where you can put in cultural heritage information, and you can set up different restrictions to different types of information. So you can say this type of information only men can see, this type of information only people from this clan can see, this type of information only people within the tribe can see, this type of information only tribal members and you know archaeologists from this agency can see. You can set up whatever levels of confidentiality you need to that, that works with the community itself. So I, let's once we get back from the break, let's let's talk about this idea some more and other things that you've seen work there. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. And we are back. So we were just talking a little bit, we, or I introduced the topic of confidentiality and how that ties into technology. So both... You know, like Emily was talking about how social media can be a great platform to spread the word wide, but then also what about the other side of that? What about when when tribes do want to restrict access? How can technology either or help or hinder with something like that? So, Brees, do you want to start? Sure. Yeah, where to start? Um, I think I for us, one of the key part is if it's confidential, we just choose not to say anything about it. Uh, and 
you know, our office as being part of the tribal government, uh, we're constantly in those government to government conversations or, you know, somebody's calling up um, as they're obligated to and they want information and we just simply tell them, yes, there's information. You just aren't going to be privy to it. And that, that causes frustration, uh, obviously. Uh, but then the the other part of that is that we then work with them and say, okay, let's um, sit down and come up with an appropriate way of maybe finding relevant information. And so they've they'll sit down and uh, with us and come up with an interview rubric. But there's always a component to make sure that that information um, is always shared internally as well as for the outside need. And that means that we may record it, we may digitize it, or do set up keyword systems. Uh, for later, uh, you mentioned the Mercudu um, system. Uh, we're, um, our archives collection uh, program is looking into that right now, uh, and really cool f- opportunities with that. Um, the uh, but once information's out there, it's out there. There's just no bringing it back. And that's been really tough with places or, you know, certain practices um, or an understanding. Sometimes it's just not right. Or it's not necessary either. I think that's, that's another thing is, is to determine what, what's needed by the resource manager or whoever is searching these records out. What's necessary? Because um, oh, within research, we tend to like get real general and then work our way down. I find it better in, when you're u- u- utilizing these archival systems and trying to search for information. If you work from the ma- micro up, you can go to people like a tipo or to an archivist and you have, it's like you're, you're, better, you're better prepared. The types of questions you're going to ask also show intent, but also show like, you know, I don't need you to give me all this information. I'm looking for this. And it just seems to help. The more prepared the researcher is or the resource manager is, helps TIPOs and, and different organizations determine what's appropriate, what's needed. And it just seems like we get, re- we get real general when we ask for records, you know. <laughs> yes please you should come talk to some folks over here uh, I'd, I'd love to <laughs> yeah I, you're right the the profession or the the current generation that's in the workplace now um, have this idea that they need to know everything and that you know the tipos are uh, can be used like Google, and it just it doesn't work that way. Well, that's because there's a major disconnect between the field of cultural resource management and tribal historic preservation and academics. So many people within the field of archaeology come from academics, which is kind of this entitled behavior sometimes. And Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now that I, I've I've done federal archaeology, contract archaeology, and now I'm in academics. I'm seeing that gap, that there's this major gap philosophically between the discipline of preservation, which is the work it sounds like you're in, Breeze, as a working for the tipple, 
and and then academic archaeology or academic heritage preservation you could say there's this major gap and it's philosophical it's what it, it there's there is a sense of entitlement from the norm within archaeology and anthropology and then it's the opposite within preservation where it's you you're only entitled to what's necessary so until that gap is filled you're always going to have these philosophical differences it seems to me so I completely agree with you, Aaron. Like being in graduate school um, and in an anthropology department that has a very long history of just collecting information from Native people. Um, there are places on this campus at IU that just have tons of archival information um, and that people can just access whenever they sort of want to. Um, and I have a major, major problem with that. And it's interesting, though, I think my generation um, of academics is starting to realize that sort of philosophical gap you were talking about. And I know fellow graduate students, as we were like working on our dissertation proposals, are thinking about, you know, even if I want to use this sort of archival work, I feel like I need to ask the family of the the person who was recorded, you know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, like, you can't just, you're not entitled to that sort of information. Um, Native people have given that info to, you know, an anthropologist back in the day. And maybe that family doesn't want their family members' words out there anymore. Um, We don't really know the circumstances sometimes as to how people got that information. Um, So I think that it's my hope (laughs) that my generation will be a lot more cognizant of that gap and hopefully start to fill in that gap and bridge that gap. And and that community members are are informed of when certain words or information is used in a research and academic um, area. Yeah, I agree. And and to bring that back to technology, I feel like there is, and not just in academia, I've seen this in CRM as well, there's a bit of an attitude sometimes of, you know, even if if the tribe only wants non-ground disturbing or not even doesn't even have to be ground disturbing, but like um, uh, tree ring dating, you know, it's still destructive. I, there we go. Destructive analysis. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, word. That, that word. Yes. Um, sometimes you can tell I'm a cultural anthropologist. <laughs> um, Would have never so- guessed. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's what happens when you work in in CRM as a cultural anthropologist. <laughs> um, I know the words, but I'm yeah, I I'm not an archaeologist. Um, but anyway, so there is there can be this attitude of, you know, the tribe doesn't really have a right to keep us from getting this information that could help us better inform them of their ancestors Hmm. or, or, um, you know, basically like this thing is going to collapse and then future generations of this tribe won't have that because, you know, this generation said they didn't want it. Are you speaking from kind of like as, uh, from which point of view? I guess I, I missed that part. So I've basically that I've seen that attitude from about technology specifically and destructive. Uh, oh. oh yeah, technologies yeah. Uh, from a CRM or academic perspective. I've seen both. You know, not just academia, but also I've seen that attitude in CRM sometimes. Oh yeah, yeah. 
I've seen it and we experience it here, but I also think that there's a, um, it's also kind of repurpose, it's repackaging colonial, you know, practice um, with some kind of, we're taking care of this for you. Um, and without engagement and that, you know, I think that with engagement, and consent, yeah, it can be a really good practice, uh, but you know, we're not where we were in you know eighteen ninety or you know nineteen teens. Um, so, I mean, technology is great. We've just utilized um, a couple of wax cylinders of stories that haven't been heard for over a hundred years, um, and that's great. And we've been able to bring those back into community. Uh, as a one one off, but you know, I talking to elders today. What if that situation were today, and somebody came in? You know, their response is, "We would expect to be asked uh, if we could have those stories recorded and and for the future." More of an informed consent process. Absolutely, yeah. right. I think it just comes down to courtesy too. That's the right thing to do. You know, I, I think sometimes we, we rely on policy and law to determine our actions when we know full well how to act. You know, it's just courtesy to ask. It's courtesy to be considerate of other people's beliefs and, and the way they interpret something. And I think if we just acted human in the field, that alone would, would remedy a lot of these issues, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in some ways so, technology kind of takes out that human touch. That's it can, for sure. Depth. It can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I mean, Breeze needs to get going after this segment. So I do want to make sure we get to one thing that he was mentioning before before he has to jump off. So Breeze, you were talking about the apps and yeah. also just now about you know recordings from a hundred years ago. Have you, have you used any of those in the apps first of all? And second of all, just, can you tell us more about it and how you're using them? It just sounds really interesting. Yeah. So we did using, um, we did a collector app, um, using the Esri, the GIS, but it was, you know, that helped us with knowing places and, uh, allowing families, the confidentiality of, you know, it fed into our system and they only shared places that they were comfortable. But this way we were able to record and keep them safe. But, you know, what we've quickly found is that, you know, you had grandkids that knew how to, you know, drive around on the phone, uh, no problem. But you had, you know, elders sitting there telling the stories. And so, you know, we added in a, a little recorder element and a location. And then, you know, that went back to our system so that we knew we could protect that area or work to make sure that it was, um, you know, protect, you know, um, you know, enhancements in some cases. So do you, is there like a next place that you want to take that kind of work or do you just want to keep growing it or? 
What are you thinking? I would love to find a grad student, really, or just anybody that wanted to, you know, take it and up to the next level, because I think that it's a great way of, um, I don't know, holding on to some of this information by choice that a family can share this with themselves um, and, you know, know where their grandparents were, you know, when they talk about, oh, yeah, we used to go here and I lived 20 miles away and be able to put all that information there. Um, So, uh, but again, it's a a choice. I have a question. Yeah. do you see it as a success? Has it been working for you? Do you? Uh, it was a success for the immediate need of, you know, hey, trying to, you know, know where places are so that um, the TUPA work that we did, you know, we don't mess with somebody's area. Um, but the knock-on effect of seeing this kind of cross-generational sharing uh, was I really think the bigger success, like within the, within the community? Yes, yeah, I would say I would say, man, that's big time, you know. Yeah, and I mean, it's like all typos. We're trying to do um, as much with as little as we can, and so this was, you know, you know, community first and see what developed from it. So it's been good. It, but like anything, especially technology, I think it needs somebody to help shepherd it, keep the keep on top of it, uh, or it starts to, you know, it's not as interesting as the next thing that comes up. Yeah, so your work with that app seems to be driven by place name, right? Is it kind of, uh, Is that kind of what it seems to be like? It's not just place um, or place name. Uh, it's, yeah, you can drop a, a point, but it allows you to talk about what goes on uh, so that we're not stuck with a big long list of nouns, but that we get the verb in there. So, you know, we need both to make a good sentence. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't mean to be like keep asking questions, but I like oh, no. I like this idea because we work a lot with like um, understanding landscape and, and our students were trying to get this idea of place and what place means and all that information that is attached to it. And if you're going to understand the archaeology of a place, you have to understand the people and the place and that that relationship. And something like this is kind of like it seems to be twofold. It's kind of a form of ethnography, actually, you know. But it's yeah, also kind absolutely. of uh, it helps to create some sort of um, direction that the people in the community want to go, which I'm all about that. Because just within the verbiage of the app and the information you're getting back, it seems as though that would also help you deal with, well, how do we go? What's the next step of work? You know, because you're going to see that within the dialogue that it's creating. Am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. And that's kind of what we're, we try to keep in mind is, you know, our job should be about fulfilling the direction that the community has. And this is a way that we can kind of take some, take that direction. 
and understand uh, where to go. But it also allows us to kind of bring back into that conversation concerns, you know, at a practical level. If um, an agency were to do um, pesticide spraying, that, you know, it's like, hold it, don't do that here. We've got something. Um, in fact, let's use, do enhancement for those huckleberries. As, as oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, go oh, ahead. I was going to say before, are you going to cut me off, Jessica? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just had one more thing that I was hoping Brees would talk about before he has to jump. Oh, off. go ahead. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm getting into this. I'm sorry. <laughs> Which is awesome. We'll, we'll I talk love later. it. Brees, we'll talk yeah. later. Um, yeah, we will. <laughs> so Brees, you, you've also done, your tribe has also done a lot of work with drones. Am I correct in your, your typo? Yes. And yep. I'm I'm really interested to hear exactly how you've used that and how helpful you've you've felt it was. Uh, it's like anything, you know, um, a whole lot of practice. Um, but as a tool, uh, it's there. It's really versatile, and that I've really liked. You know, because you know, ranging from really practical. You know, we had, uh, we were putting in a parking lot. Uh, we had gone out with GPR. Uh, we felt pretty confident about things. And then, you know, things changed and we were able to get out with the drone and do immediate mapping from it. Uh, and so we saved a lot of time. There was that practical side uh, with the right photogrammic. Uh, software, we're able to do monitoring. So, uh, you know, we've got some property that has a, a river that runs next to it, and there's been a lot of concern about erosion. And so we can fly a path with the drone and save that path. And so we can fly the exact same path time over and match up those flights and see if there's been any erosion or not or where the erosion has occurred. Uh, so as technology there, it's been huge. We've been able to reassure community that nothing's uh, being impacted by erosion. Uh, really nice. Uh, by us doing that work in-house, we can then turn around and make recommendations to others and point out um, its use. Oh, uh, one other application is we're still working on right now, still testing out the applicability of um, kind of vegetation uh, identification. So, you know, one of the concerns and that we have is um, how much of the landscape and traditional use areas uh, may still exist out there, even though they're not being actively engaged with. So if we can kind of use the drone in the spring and identify uh, certain foliage as it starts to bloom, then we may be able to point to high probability areas of managed landscape. and then. The next step 
coming back to that earlier question from Aaron, uh, is you know let people know that here's an area that's ready. It just is looking for some attention, and you know we step back. So the drone itself is just uh, it's a tool that allows us to do a lot of different things. What about uh, ground? You mentioned GPR, so ground penetrating radar. How, how do you guys use that at the tribe? Um, in all ways. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> we we got the the unit uh, for a while, and we still do. Uh, we contract out to do it. Um, you know, for projects, uh, we also do some volunteer work with it or, or gratis because we're constantly trying to demonstrate all of these non-intrusive methods in archaeology um, you know that you don't need to put a shovel in everywhere let's use some of these other tools uh, to do first uh, and we use it on property sometimes it's about coming and finding a, a utility that nobody mapped when it went in. In other cases, it's, you know, to protect uh, known places and show that a boundary line actually should be extended. Um, another technology that we use here is photogrammetry. Um, and you can use it at, at the landscape scale. But we just had 16 objects on loan from the British Museum that were, uh, quote, collected here in, in Grand Ronde in the 1870s. But we did 3D scans and photogrammetry of these objects. And that allows us to examine these objects that we're not allowed to touch. But we have the the 3d model we can print it out on a 3d printer and it actually allows us to get closer to understand carving technique and you know let our carvers you know play around with the model and on the computer and get an idea of how it actually was made um, not that that's the same way it has to be made today, but it broadens that library um, of choice. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Wow. Okay. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 We had the curator and the conservator here uh, when those objects came over, those belongings, and um, they walked away with a real education um, yeah, as, you know, they handled things, but we uh, ran a 3D scanner and the photogrammetry and we were able to kind of zoom in and look at wear patterns. So, you know, a carved horn, horn bull, we were able to show actually how it would have been held based on the wear patterns. That's pretty awesome. So cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, is there anything else that you were thinking about, Bruce, when you were looking over these questions that you want to add before you have to jump off? Um, I, th yeah, just really quick two things. One, um, I mean, we're kind of talking about technology today 
for the future. Uh, but I mentioned using wax cylinders from a century ago. There's a lot still out there in old technology. And one of the things that we're constantly having to account for is when you know somebody comes in with old beta tapes and old technology, how do we save that or get that brought into uh, the new technology or the current technology today? Uh, so that's something to keep in mind. And the other is all of these questions that, that you had in the conversation we've had, uh, we try to bring up with the field school that we uh, work with, University of Washington, uh, and that next generation of student of, you know, how to be aware of what is just every day for you, you need to kind of take a step back and reconsider. And, you know, Emily was talking about, you know, those photos from field school. And, you know, we make sure that everybody turns them off or sets the phone off to the side and only, you know, with permission, get to take those, you know, uh, personal photos. All right. Well, with that, we're going to bring this segment to an end and we'll be right back um, with Aaron and Emily. Hey, podcast fans and digital archaeologists. Have you heard about WildNote? It's a data collection app that works online or offline on your smartphone or tablet, iOS or Android. It allows you to collect field data easily, manage data efficiently, and generate data reports and site records effortlessly. We have a growing list of state site forms built in for your use and some generic forms that will work anywhere. Check out the shovel testing and photograph forms. You can get a free all-access 30-day trial today by going to wildnoteapp.com. That's wildnoteapp.com for your free 30-day trial. Now back to the show. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, and we are back. So let us move into... I Okay, I'm kind of curious what you two think about this. I had a question on the list that I sent you to, and, and I'm curious what you think about this. So the question was, who is technology made for and how does it reflect that? And where this question kind of came from was actually, I think it was a TED Talk maybe, the TED radio or podcast or something, but they were interviewing people about technology. I don't remember what the episode was, but one of the, the people was talking about how, for example, algorithms really select, if, if they're looking at job candidates, for example, they select people like those who have been successful before. And obviously those who have been successful before, because of the way our society is set up, tends to be white men. So automatically, that shocks me. Yeah, that absolutely, right? That absolutely shocks me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so the algorithm 
basically has become discriminatory because the system is discriminatory. And then also giving an example of, of someone who worked, it was a, um, she was African American woman, I believe. And she worked in software technology. And basically she was at one of those demos and the, the software like couldn't read her because it had only been tested on white people basically. So it literally couldn't recognize her in her movement. So those two examples kind of made me think about does who traditionally has made technology affect um, how it's used in Indian country and its usefulness, et cetera. Is that changing? Can it be fixed? All of that good stuff. Yeah. I mean, Obviously, a lot of technology is you is like created by like not native people for what I know. Um, so but one sort of technology and I know that we were supposed to stay away from GIS, but I'm taking a GIS class this semester and I my final project is mapping uh, traditional tribal territory with different rock art sites that have uh, elk. Uh, iconography, um, so elk and ceremonial context. And I, it was like really cool to see that me as an indigenous person can, can use a tool like GIS to, um, create a very indigenous oriented map. So even though the technology isn't necessarily made for native people, I think like GIS, for example, Native people can sort of manipulate it to make it indigenous, <laughs> um, which I think can be really cool. Yeah, absolutely. It could be cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think, um, I, I don't think we're going to get past kind of what you're referring to, Jessica, about um, the algorithms kind of being geared towards a certain ethnicity or, or whatever i'm not i didn't say the w word you said that i said <laughs> as a <the> white lady <laughs> <laughs> no, no i so i think indian people have always been very good about working within within the boxes we've been mm-hmm. delegated to and and we have this remarkable form of of self-preservation so regardless of the technology and the movement of technology indian people are always going to be here and we're going to figure out a way to make it work for us. It, it's not always by us, but we can, I know for a fact that we can make it work for us. But yeah, there's certain pitfalls within technology that just don't have a place in, in Indian country. Indian people have been very good about uh, um, maintaining cultural identity and spiritual culture and, and, and course like utilitarian culture as well given everything we have gone through so i i I don't think technology in that sense can hurt us um because it's you can't compare technology to some of the stuff we had gone through um so i know it's going to work for us we're going to make it work for us and i know i'm kind of going on a on a tangent here but um to get back to your question like who's it for um, it's definitely not for us, but we figured out a way to make it work. Well, and I think just even like what you were talking about before, I mean, a lot of this technology, it was made for, you know, more like this science, blah, 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 learning as much as we can before it gets destroyed, blah, blah, blah. 
But what is it being used for in Indian country? Like what you said, you're using it to take sites to elders. You're using it to connect, you know, Grand Ron's using it to connect elders to their youth. Like there's taking the same thing and, and just the fact that this focus is totally different, I think shows a lot of what you're, you're saying right there. Yeah. And I'm sure Emily has run into the same stuff where we're choosing to use technology for more of a community-based approach to our work as opposed to just scientific research, which, I mean, that's fine and that's good, but um, typically Native people are about preservation and perpetuation of culture as opposed to just um, your typical scientific approach to the resource. You know Exactly. And some technology I feel like is very open and then it's very like the user can manipulate it. And so it's great for native people to manipulate it how they want it. But on the flip side, you have to remember that there are people who will use technology and manipulate it for things that might harm native people. Um, Mapping can be incredibly manipulative. And so it's important to keep that in mind. Like the openness of GIS is great depending on what your intentions are when you're using it. Yeah, you're right. I for sure I've it I have for sure seen technology and what can come out of technology used as like a smoke and mirrors kind of approach to to this job and and how people have used that to kind of manipulate a project to fit the direction they want to go as opposed to how culture committees, elders groups and even Indian youth who typically go overlooked in this field but we also we have to be cognizant of where Indian what Indian youth need, mm. you know, because identity plays a big part in who we are and and even our mental health and and everything like that. And I know this this is not what this is about, but technology in that sense could be super beneficial to restoring some of that. But we can't forget that with or without technology, we still have to be Indian, and mm. that 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 starts in the home. And so um, parents are figuring out to use uh, technology in the home to teach culture, to help um, youth understand that. So we can't forget, I, I know our focus is to bring the sites and bring and understand uh, management of sites to, to elders groups and culture committees. But I think it, it's just as important to, while doing that, we should incorporate youth into that and we should bring youth into the, and, and have them be observers of this and interact with uh, elders. So they're learning in the process that um, of management, importance, mitigation, all of that. And they're being raised in that environment. So we're not having to face this issue again in the future. So, Absolutely. Right. Well, how, how is there a direction that you would like to see technology go to better serve that goal? or like how it's used in historic preservation or within tribes, et cetera. Go ahead. Are you talking to me? Are, Emily can answer. Both of you. Just um, how, how could it be a better match for, like you, you're talking about how um, innovative Indigenous people are when it comes to technology. Um, but if there was really like, if you really had your way, <laughs> what would it look like? I mean, I personally would like to see Native people coming up with their own technologies um, or even maybe going back to traditional technologies. I think there's this idea that technology is for 
Western cultures and people, but Native people have always had science and technology. Um, so maybe going back to sort of traditional ways of thinking and traditional methods um, or having not just, you know, I'm thinking about myself personally, like me coming back into my like native community as like the academic and the scientist. And like, I know how to use GIS and those sorts of things and photogrammetry. Um, but having like making it more about like community learning. And so even though I may know how to do something is like talking to some of my family and being like, Hey, like let's learn photogrammetry together. Like you can also use this technology. So I think that sort of community based learning, which is a traditional practice, I think might also be really beneficial. Yeah, I agree. I I totally agree. I, yeah, that was good. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's, it's kind of one of these things. It's, I, I, I really believe in the practical and the, and the logical approach to resource management and to heritage preservation. And, and I, I really am fearful that Indian people working within the field, and I'm speaking as one, that we can get too theoretical and too philosophical and lose sight of actually doing the job. So these ideas, apps are very doable. This technology is very doable. We don't need to wait for grants to do it. It, uh, Culture really is um, on the respirator for us. And we can't afford to not try every avenue to preserve, right? And, And so technology is just right in there, just as well as any other approach we would go. And and so making these things more community-based involving youth and elders groups and, and anyone that can help. I, that's kind of the, the, the way I see it. You know, I, I think technology in that sense could help because at this point, anything could help. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, any, any final thoughts from either of you before we end this out? I don't think I do. I don't have any. Emily. I don't have any. Hey, actually, I have a question for you, Emily, about um, the work you're doing with pictographs. And uh, and this relates to technology. We got like a couple minutes, I think. Um, ha- do you use D-Stretch very much? Um, I have used it. I mm-hmm. think that it can be helpful when trying to see an image uh, in a rock art panel. But I also... I struggle with it because we're, we're putting technology on an image. Um, and so we're sort of mm, messing with the original image and I like erosion is obviously an issue and they are, you know, unfortunately paint is coming off and things are eroding away. But at the same time, you know, messing with D stretch and figuring out, you know, like weird colors coming forward. And I think sometimes it, distorts the image in a way that I'm not comfortable with because a you know a native person did create this and this is the way that they wanted it to be um but messing with it in that sort of weird lighting can be helpful from a research perspective but I don't know if it necessarily is helpful in a cultural um sort of sense yeah and and so do you feel like the cultural approach to the study of pictographs is more uh is there a level of importance as opposed to the, just the scientific approach? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I hope in my dissertation to actually bring um, people from my community to some of those uh, rock art sites 
um, and, and really get their perspective on it and not just, you know, put a D stretch filter on it and try to understand its meaning, but really having, um, community members, uh, go back to those sites and think about those, those images and what they potentially could mean. Yeah. I like that. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Thanks for listening to the heritage voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash heritage voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at Jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.